0: Welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a totally serious podcast about herpetology, where we talk about reptiles and amphibians and all of the cool newts. Um, I'm one of your three co-hosts. My name is Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and a PhD candidate in the very last few days of wrapping up my PhD. And I'm joined, as usual, by my two co-hosts, Ethan... Ethan Kosak
1: of Black Mud Puppy uh, fame and fortune, and <laughs> a cartoonist. And I don't know, that's, that's me.
0: <laughs> and
1: Gabriel.
2: And I'm Gabriel Ughetto, and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator. And I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore.
0: And we are joined by a very special guest. Guest? Guest? <laughs> we are joined by a very special guest host. James Stroud. James, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself?
3: Yeah. Uh, hi, guys. Thank you very much um, for having me. I'm a um, postdoc research um, scientist at Washington University in St. Louis, um, working with anolis lizards uh, now mainly, but but tropical biology um, as a whole. Anolis! Excellent. Yay! Yay!
0: <laughs> yeah, so... Um, <laughs> You it, all asked for
3: it. Yeah, for exactly. For by yeah, popular seen, I've seen request, a I've seen a lot of kickback. <laughs> on Twitter recently. We talk about Anoles a lot. There's no
2: we way do. around it. There's no way. We talked
0: about Anoles in almost every episode. Um, There's no but way There is a particularly good reason why we're talking about Anoles in this episode, and why we are joined by James. And that particularly good reason is the appearance of. Uh, the so-called Anolis newsletter, which we will get to in a bit. First of all, we're going to go through the normal um, sort of of show things. Uh, The very first thing, so Missed Snakes is, of course, section one of the podcast. um, And we have to fess up that the biggest missed snake was that this is the second time we're recording this episode. <laughs> oh yes, The first we one were, we was... Were,
1: yeah, we were going to have a big comeback episode. This is going to be a special. Exactly.
0: And, uh, and... The, the first one was marred by a technical fuck-up. <laughs> <Yes>. And now...
3: <laughs> round well, two... So- these guys are being exceptionally kind. The technical uh, mess up was <laughs> I forgot to press record and I realised <laughs> after after three hours of of hmm. rambling away chatting about lizards. Um, but, I mean, I, I think I, I probably I might have done it on purpose because would I be the first guest host to have appeared twice? Yes, you You are. You are, are, are. certainly. Top of the leaderboard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you are only the second guest host, so the bar is not high, but... (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so this episode, if if anything sounds a bit weird, it's because we're trying not to remember too strictly what happened in the last episode, uh, but also trying to get in all of the good content from that time around.
2: Or remember (laughs) at all.
0: (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there are a few other things that we wanted to bring up. Um first of all, in the last episode, so in episode seven, I mentioned about Ebenavia, which are these little um in German they're called Pinserschwanz geckos. Drink. Drink. <laughs> oh. Oh. So um in English they're called clawless geckos, which is a crap name. But uh, the German name means paintbrush tail gecko. And um, because when they regenerate their tails, it looks a lot like a paintbrush. And (laughs) I mentioned that they are something like 30 million years old. Wrong. Um, They're actually about 5 to 15 million years old. Doesn't make that much of a difference. But anyway. And the second thing is we got a lovely email from our friend, uh, Dr. Darren Nash of the Tetrapod Zoology podcast. And he said, hey, guys, good show. In the discussion about aesthetics of names, vis-a-vis where Gabriel so famously said, my ears care, my eyes care, <laughs> he asked if we have heard of the case of the Madidi Now, aside from the fact that that's an excellent name, the Medidi Titi was, is a monkey, and initially it was named the GoldenPalace.com monkey because a casino bought the rights to have the name done. Uh, but the nice thing is that the scientists had a little bit more sense than than some others, and uh, they decided to name it Plectorisibus uh, instead of Plecturisibus, goldenpalace.comi, or whatever it might have been, they decided to name it Orei Plati, Palati, which is the Latin for um, for Golden Palace. So it is possible, if you sell a name, to use a that's, good name.
2: That's a uh, terrible name. But, but it's, it's, still, better, it's yeah. better than Golden. golden it's better than goldenpalace.comi,
0: <laughs> yeah. and it's definitely better than News Wiki, which remains the worst yeah. one that I'm aware of.
2: Well, goldenpalace.com is getting there.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, but that one didn't happen. That's the point. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, if I I discovered a monkey
1: and I wanted to name it after a website, can you include like (laughs) subdomains? So, (laughs) goldenpalaceci.com slash click here for, you know. Yeah.
0: Uh, I think you could, I guess. I think we just generally want to avoid it. Yes.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe we do. <laughs>
2: and and for all people that know a little bit about monkeys, these are the monkeys or the 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 monkeys that used to be in the genus for a long time. They were in the genus Callicebus, Callicebus, and now they have been split into I think two genera. But. Most people will be familiar with (laughs) Well, you know, you might not like him, but this is a very important group These are not herpes! This is a very important group of... of They're also... They're teratropical monkeys.
3: monkeys. Guys, (laughs) I I think think I've joined the wrong podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We now return you to your uh, scheduled uh, podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get away from the monkeys and talk about... I'm being bullied. You are being bullied. This is a herp. To- you can tune in to Gabriel's Monkey Podcast, which the airs on Fridays. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's Gabriel's Monkey Corner.
4: It's I, not this I, one.
2: You know, I will stop for, for trying to give more information to our listeners.
0: Yes. yes. Well, it's not herp-related information. The reason they are here, aside Gabriel, from that, us that, being that halo hilarious, the light
3: coming off it is just blinding me. Oh really? <laughs> Yeah, the is... halo above your head. Just trying to <laughs> give information, give information to the, to the masses.
2: <laughs> it's, it's it's the karma I live with.
0: <laughs> uh. <laughs> is it a curse? Is it a blessing? Yes. Yes. Mostly it's a distraction. We digress. Let's get back to <laughs> Let's get back to the podcast. This is how
2: we do 3-hour episodes. And, yes,
0: yeah. this is why we wind up with 3-hour episodes and this one cannot be one. So, it's time to talk about works in progress. What's going yes. on with people wherein um, we complain about our day-to-day lives in <laughs> academia and out of it? So I'll go first, <laughs> as usual. You should, go, you should go first, yeah. Yes. Uh, I have a lot to be very happy about, which is quite good. Um, in January, we published uh, Europlatus finaritra, which is a new species of leaf gecko from northeastern Madagascar which is just a beautiful animal. It's the largest of the leaf-shaped leaf tailed geckos. If you're familiar with satanic leaf-tail geckos, this is a very close relative. It also has a very large <laughs> tail and, um, and looks like a devil and a leaf combined. So that's cool. Uh, that was published in Zootaxa earlier this year uh, in January. And I had a second paper published, which was on um, xenotyphlops. So uh, xenotyphlops are these weird-ass snakes that are, they're But, right, so the question is, are the scolicovidians a monophyletic radiation or not? Um, no. Turns out, no. And um, the what we argue in the everyone's paper... mind.
2: Well, it, you is. Know, it is. To be fair, it's, it's not a question anymore. It was for a long time, but
0: <laughs> it wasn't. Well, now the question is how much of the scolichafidian body plan, so the bowel plan of a scolichafidian, is like tiny animal, small head, very reduced skull, and all these things, and how much of that is actually arising as a result of convergence, and how much of it is is a result of shared ancestry. And uh, we argue in the paper that because. Xenotyphlops, which is a member of the typhlopoidea, um, because it looks basically just like other typhlops, but has a sort of bent head, the typhlopoids share as a, as a synapomorphy um, a particular jaw mechanism, which is very different from all the other um makes, snakes, which makes them very different. In terms of uh, of the way that they eat, so all these things are like are, are, are termite gobbling machines, but the way that they have become termite gobbling machines is very different and as a result we think that they have converged on this uh, morphology and not it's not shared so that paper came out and now I have three papers that are also in press at the moment. one of them is about uh, frogs on a mountain called Marojejy in northern Madagascar, actually the same mountain where Europlatus finaritra is from. And uh, it's basically about the distribution of different species in the genus Stumpfia, which are the dwarf frogs. I have a new chameleon that's coming out. It's very, very small. It should be published any day now, um, which love is cool. I how you talk about these things like, like your album just dropped. You <laughs> yeah, know, like- it's good. It's good. <laughs> Yeah. And the third one, the third one is a a very important chapter of my thesis. Uh, It's chapter nine. Um, And in this chapter, we described five new species of frogs, including one new genus with three new species. And they are all ridiculously small. Like they are, uh, I think the largest of them is 14, 14 millimeters long adult size and the Jeez. smallest of them maxes out at, at 10 millimeters. That so is
2: approaching the smallest, smallest size of all frogs. Yeah. yeah.
0: Correct. So one of them we thought was the smallest vertebrate. It turns out it's not. Um, but yeah, I got to name a new genus, which is always fun. And yeah, wow. that's the second one that I've gotten to name, which is wicked. And uh, that's going to be a really cool paper. It's it's coming out in plus one. It will probably be coming out a few a little bit after this episode airs, um, sometime still in March of 2019, um, but I'm very excited about that.
2: How many new, new uh, genera have you named, Mark?
0: That'll be my second one.
2: <laughs> this is the only thing I, 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 I win <laughs> against Mark. I have named more genera than Mark, but that's the only thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what have you named as genera?
2: Tietz. Um, Aurevella.
0: Oh. Do they really count though?
2: Of course they do. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, that's cool. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> good for you. It's like naming new it old genera. nobody's gonna use them anyway. You might as oh, well. No, I'm sorry.
2: I'm sorry. It's we'll much more that. difficult. It's much more difficult to name lizard genera than name frog genera. I'm sorry.
0: That's because yeah. lizards are better studied. <laughs>
2: Okay, okay we, so, we'll discuss that later. Right. I'm children. not done.
0: There, there is still a few more. Um, I have, I don't know how many papers it is. I have to check. One, two, three, four, five. I have six papers that are submitted or in review or in revision. Actually, they're all just in revision at the moment. Uh, in review at the moment, including uh, new geckos. New gecko phylogeography in uh eastern and northern Madagascar. Uh another important thesis chapter, which describes two new species and has a very heavy critique of the way the IUCN functions. And uh at least I think two two new frogs. So yeah. And then uh my thesis is the like the main thing that I have been working on that's uh consuming all of my life. And uh I am in the last so there's a, day before yesterday, I think I wrapped up chapter 10 and chapter 11, I'm trying to wrap up right now. And the actual thesis content itself, uh, so the, the introduction and discussion either end are coming together and I've been familiarizing myself a lot with InDesign, which is an amazing piece of software. Love I love it. it. I love it. Ugh, I love it. Changed my life.
2: That's when what I'm, what is I'm doing in my book. InDesign. InDesign is Adobe's Um, Adobe InDesign. Yeah, book design software. So earlier in my career when I started working and I worked for a magazine, I used to work with Quark Express. You remember Quark? Any of you use Quark Express before? Yes, I did. And then I I switched into InDesign. InDesign is so much better.
1: Yeah, you know what happened with Quark is when Apple switched to Intel chips, they refused. They they said, no, we're going to stay PowerPC and that worked out. Very well. For Awkward. Me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. So my very last piece of news is that I'm going back to Madagascar at the end of Jan- uh, at the end of April. So from the 15th of April, um, for a holiday, but working holiday, you know, as you do. So that's for how long?
2: Uh,
0: three weeks. I'm just going to one island, the island of Nosy Bay, which is off the northwest end famous, of Madagascar. Famous, 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 oh, famous, famous. Very very famous, very famous island. Famous, yeah. famous, famous right? for having yeah. all yeah. kinds of different. It's the because it was uh, one of the places places where the um, the French had a had a trading post in Nosy Bay. So most of the scientific collections in the 1800s and things were coming from Nosy Bay whether they were collected there or not yeah, right. is uncertain <laughs> but a lot that of the things have a type episode. locality of Nosy Bay and so and many of them haven't been found again so part of the reason that we want to go is to try and rediscover some of those old species as well as like it's the type locality of and the yeah. only place that it's really easy to find Rambafrin testudo which is um a very fat, very round frog that belongs to this genus that I um, that I study very intensely. So I'm really excited to go there. I think it's going to be really cool to see the island because I've never been to, to Nosy Bay, um, and hopefully we will have some luck in in finding these things. And hopefully we also won't have too much like interaction with the other like the other tourists because Nosy Bay is also famous as being the hotspot in Madagascar for sex tourism. So
2: wow. Wow, that's that's particular. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. That got dark. So yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna try and avoid all of that and do some do some diving and snorkeling and um and herping and see what we can find. So
2: it's gonna be great. All right, Gabriel, your turn. All right, so let me remember everything because we were supposed to do this last episode and it was supposed to be from the beginning of the year. So just to I've been working on these two commissions, two separate commissions that are very large for about four months now. And um, I finished with one and I'm almost finished with the other one. I cannot talk, I cannot disclose much about them. But one of them is for a children's book about dinosaurs and other um, prehistoric reptiles, which that's done. And I'm very happy because it was, it was a very nice project, but it lasted longer than I expected, expected it to. Um, and it's, it's a pretty nice book for children. It a, was, was a great opportunity to showcase accurately reconstructed dinosaurs to children, not, you know, movie monsters yeah. or scaly lizards, but like, you know, accurate dinosaurs. Yeah. And, and the other is a very large commission for a museum that I cannot really talk about. Much about anything but it's been really cool because I, they asked me to reconstruct a ton of interesting animals that was that i had never done before which was really cool and also i had to do a lot of uh drawings <clears throat> about um paleo uh paleobotany specimens so plants which is really cool because it's something that i always feel that is i was I didn't know that much about and it was a great opportunity to know more and it's not depicted in paleo art that often either so uh, it was a great it was great fun to learn um and it's I, also
0: super important right for for constructing yeah. things like the backdrops in your in your paleo well, scenes
2: well not only the backdrops when you when i think about the coloration of the integument that some animal could have had it's important for me to you know understand the environment in which you lived, the temperature, what kind of vegetation, because, you know, depending on the vegetation, you could think about what coloration would have worked in that kind of environment. And no no, uh, no grass and no flowers, right? No grass and no flowers. Well, <laughs> I, I, right now, I'm I, the, the ones that they asked me to reconstruct, I, I am doing some gymnosperms mm. uh, um, because, you know, I'm doing, they also asked me to reconstruct even some... Miocene um, and some more recent stuff. So I ha- I'm, I'm doing stuff from the Triassic and I'm doing stuff from the Miocene. So it's been like all over, but it's super. It's been super interesting. I also uh, did a little work for Mark that commissioned me to Yay. do the illustration for his thesis of two really nice looking Madagascar frogs. One is a um, microhylid which is uh, called Platodontohyla Gentheri, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a beautiful super frog. cool, beautiful, beautiful frog. And the, the more I did it, the more I, I, I started like studying to paint it and draw it. The more colorations and interesting facts about the colorations I was discovering. It's a really, it was a f- really fun um, illustration to do. The other one was a mantellid that doesn't look like a mantellid like all like typical mantella that you think about when you think of mantellids it's a it's a pretty cryptic colored frog that looks and looks a lot like for people that work in the neotropics it looks a lot like a pristimantis um, yeah. and so that one was a lot of fun to do so I did that for marketing. thing was a lot of fun I th- I'm
1: from I'm from the northeast I thought it kind of looks like a little wood frog almost you know with, with the well, of, but it's slender, but it's a slender
2: yeah. frog, you know, it's like a, yeah. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. tiny slender I think,
0: frog. So, so they, they are leaf litter frogs, so they do, I guess they do behave a little bit like a um, a wood frog, but they, unlike the wood frogs, they climb up onto leaves and things to call. So yeah. they're, yeah, yeah. but pristamantis so like is <laughs> an in, incredible close mimic, like a close evolutionary um, yeah. uh, convergence there. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. astounding, actually. Yeah.
2: Um, uh, I've been working also a lot in um, my book. I'm trying to finish it for all of you who follow me on social media, you know that I'm doing this book about it's called, it's going to be called Journey to the Mesozoic, Tetrapods of the Triassic and the Jurassic. and where I'm reconstructing a bunch of uh, a bunch of different types of tetrapods from those periods. I'm um, working really hard on finishing it. It's, you know, it would be great if I could dedicate all my time to that, but I have to eat, so yeah. I have to take commissions and stuff. So <laughs> that is what pays my bills. And yeah. um, I have a, I'm go- I'm about to start a new commission that Ethan might like. This I was commissioned to do a private commission for um, a Japan- Japanese giant salamander. Oh, nice. so that's cool! It's gonna be really cool. I, I will. Probably be posting updates about that in in my social. media. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's nice. uh, what I've been doing. That's all I can think about. What about you, Ethan? Oh, uh, let's see.
1: Well, I got uh, contacted about doing a third book in the fart trilogy. Will be a trilogy now. <laughs> Congratulations! Uh, yeah, and I and I think I'm allowed to say the title because Danny and Nick did already. So it's going to be uh, Believe It or Snot. Which is expensive. by
0: far a better
1: title than Book Two, I must say. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be uh, a fun one, and uh, I've already I, I said I'll do it on the condition that I get to draw that you know exploding truck full of hagfish. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah they, what, what, um, what was what was Book Two title? Book
0: true or Two or is Truer true Poo. which yeah. is That's yeah about
3: on, on, on par with each other.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Believe it or it's not, is is pretty ace. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty,
3: it's pretty good.
0: <laughs> yeah. So they've they've already started gathering um, a lot of material for the book, right? So
1: yeah. So that's great. yeah. We, um, we're at the phase right now where I'm not doing much. They're writing and gathering. You know, deciding on what we're gonna.
2: Also, oh, you cover. don't have a, a list of illustrations to do yet.
1: Um, We've got a list of stuff we're talking about, but I don't have a finalized list to start in on yet. Any
2: particular species that you're excited without saying what it is? Any particular one that you're excited to to Uh, do? It's not others.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I drew one of those already for the last one. That's true. Uh, But, uh, yeah, uh, we've talked about, like, lungfish and uh you know and hag i want to do the hagfish for sure or the you mm. know slime eel that stuff yeah
4: you know
0: cool now yeah.
1: great anything else going on
3: lots of lots of newts eggs <laughs> of newts. oh yeah, well, I, oh, this, yeah. Time, this time uh when we tried to do the podcast before they weren't yet hatching right
1: yeah they weren't they were i was yelling at them to start <laughs> breeding How was it that oh, was it. <laughs> yeah. And now they're hatching.
3: That's yeah, uh, like,
1: uh, I pulled out like a ton of, uh, Triturus, Debrogicus eggs this morning. Mm. Lots of Marmoratus hatching. Yeah.
0: You're, so, those, um, those black and white eggs are super cool.
1: Yeah. That's, those are axolotls. I think that's, uh, those are going to be leucistic. Yeah. Mm. Uh, because it looks like it's, because with all the leucistic ones, they start that way and then they kind of, the pigment doesn't migrate
0: properly yeah yeah interesting weird
3: all right and james uh yeah what are you working on um well so the majority of my time and the start of 2019 has been um working on this newsletter or putting this newsletter together which just came out and uh which is the only reason you've invited me on here um, so, I bet I mentioned that. <laughs> I mean, we're going to mention that for like maybe an hour, so yeah,
0: right. <laughs> not um, so much pressure on that.
3: <laughs> there's a I had another couple of things come out which I was which I was pretty happy about. and pretty proud of uh, one um, nice study in a in a journal called Urban Ecosystems, where we uh, presented some some data and some studies of brown owls and their display behaviour there how they uh, display their dewlap, which is a, an extendable throat fan just underneath the, uh, the heads. Anoles are famous all for having dewlaps of all different shapes and sizes and colors. So we looked at, at the display behavior of brown anoles in kind of natural forest areas and then on, in urban areas in Miami as well. Um, so see the difference in how structural habitat of urban versus natural forest might influence how they try and visu- visually communicate um, and it was really lovely because the, all of the behavioral work was was spearheaded by a fantastic undergraduate Marie Colomb from um, Puerto Rico. and all of the ecological data were collected by FIU uh, undergraduates and then all of our habitat data were collected by a whole ecology lab of, of undergraduates at FIU. So I was thrilled for that paper to come out because it was really a great effort of a ton of undergrad students. Um, mm. So that, that was that was fun and I enjoyed I enjoyed. Uh, getting that one out, um, we had another paper just come out in Journal Biogeography, uh, led by uh, Caitlin Mothers, who's a PhD student at University of Miami. Um, very talented student, and she she did some ecological niche modeling of, of invasive or non-native lizards in Florida, trying trying to predict just how far they'd spread. Um, and it was nice because we we kind of validated or calibrated those models using real physiological data. So we caught a bunch of them in Florida. And looked at the sort of temperatures at which, at which activity ceases, both at the top end and at the low end. And, um, and that's rarely done in, in niche modeling. So, uh, that was a fun project. Um, and then a few other things floating around, but, but, oh, I just had one, one come out that you might like might, or not come out One submitted that you might like to Biotropica about the importance of collecting basic data. So oh, how, important, yeah. how important it is just to keep doing surveys. Just, just to keep recording presence absence or record abundance data. These are incredibly valuable valuable biological and ecological data, yet um, Absolutely. basic science can be very, very hard to justify sometimes. Um, and especially mm. in the tropics, which are massively understudied relative to everywhere else, else on Earth. So uh, that was nice. I wrote that with um, a scientist called Michelle Thompson, who's at the Chicago uh, Field Museum. Um, she's Uh, excellent tropical herpetologist Um, Mm -hmm. and then then the Anolis newsletter uh, mainly and getting ready for field work I leave on Friday. Oh really? You're coming down here. I'm coming coming back to the 305 my adopted homeland yeah. Um, (laughs) You're ready to leave. You're um, ready ready to to (laughs) leave. We had another snowstorm today and it was so so kind of vicious it knocked all the power out in our entire street um, so yeah, I mean, I can't wait. 82 degrees. Yeah, 82 degrees today here. I am, I am more than okay with 82 degrees. Ah <laughs> oh, goodness. We had
2: no winter, but i uh, honestly, I mean, it's all you know. The temperature is warm here, and everything is fine. But it, it's crazy. Mm. We had no winter this year, and that's the year we barely had any. It seems like any year, every year is worse and worse and worse. And it's it's weird.
3: It's, I bet the, li- I bet the lizards are. Uh, kicking about now way earlier than usual. I was out
2: would. this morning and they're like, I mean, their night and all is down in the trees this time of the year, which is crazy because they're usually in they're the canopy this time of the year.
3: Yeah, you don't usually see them until kind of, yeah, mid-March at the earliest, um, yeah, late no, March, they're all much, much down, more generally.
2: All on the base of the trees and everything seems to be expanding too. Like all yeah. the populations of a lot of stuff seem to be growing in size in urban areas. But they all seem to be expanding. It's crazy. The amount of curly-tailed lizards that they are everywhere now is insane. And we'll talk Incredible. about that later because I have a few things to ask you about uh, about that. But um, yeah. it's pretty it's really <laughs> well, crazy. Well, I'll
3: just expand on something you just said there about the night owls appearing. So what some people might not know is in the winter, the night owls are incredibly arboreal. And they retreat to the canopy for the majority of, of, the, of the winter season. And then in about March, April time, in the springtime, they come down... Uh, and uh, come down and sit, usually between like five and ten feet high, and all will start uh, signalling to each other and chatting to each other uh, as the breeding season is kicking off. Um, and then they stay kind of visible throughout the summer, but then in the winter retreat back up the top again, and, uh, mm-hmm. and you hardly see them.
2: Yeah, and I've been I've been seeing them since mid February. I showed James that's, uh, that's picture right. one of them the other day. I remember we were talking about it on on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah right. it's it's crazy. They've been down the trunks from since mid-February, which is insane. And they went also, you could, you know, I, stu- I, I st- stayed seeing them in November. So they really never went to the canopy that much mm. for, only for like a couple of months or so. Yeah,
3: yeah having, having moved to, uh, to the Midwest in November, um, I can't wait to get back and see some lizards. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> how, how you're, leaving, the, uh, you're leaving uh, the canopy as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. So, the latitudinal <laughs> canopy. <laughs> how, how has the adjustment been to, um, to moving to St. Louis? I mean, that's sort of, I guess that's sort of the biggest news of, of the year, right?
3: Well, uh, so, yeah, it's a little bit different. I mean, I moved here in November and uh, this is now, now it's March. This is the fifth month of having snow, having been in Miami for the last six years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it, could, it, could be, it could be worse. I could be even more north. How, how
0: um, cohesive is the Losos lab remaining now that you've mm-hmm. moved there?
3: So the Losos lab, headed by a, a guy called Jonathan Losos, who, who primarily studies anolus lizards, um, was at Harvard. So it was over in Boston. And Jonathan Losos recently moved back to Washington University in St. Louis. So some of the lab which had already started their graduate studies are still at Harvard, um, but still affiliated with the lab. Uh, so we still yeah. have lab, lab meetings together and everything.
2: For all those that are interested in anolis, Harvard has always been extremely important because that was the home of Williams too, which was uh, Ernest Williams, who was the great 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 grandfather of all anolis all uh, anologists. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ernest
3: Williams at Harvard really, really <laughs> cemented their position as a as a model system in ecology and evolution. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it might be a nice segue. He was the he was responsible for the the first ever for the inception of the Enolis newsletter. Um, so in, in 1972, uh, 1972, he brought out the first Enolis newsletter, which was just a um, basically a grant report to the National Science Foundation, the NSF, about what he's been doing with their money and uh, what other Enolis biologists are doing with with government money. And uh, since yeah. then. There's been um, a collection of newsletters come out every few years, uh, not particularly formally and not not consistently. Um, and it just is a place to air um, kind of information and thoughts and progress reports on who's doing what in the world of old biology.
1: Yeah. Have you, cons- have you considered forum. calling it the do lap?
3: No. <laughs> 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 but, but I'll, I'll put it i'll put it out there
0: <laughs> i think maybe a new list newsletter is uh succinct enough yeah
3: yeah i think you get all the information you need out of an oldest newsletter the julep yeah. yeah i know it might be a little bit cryptic
0: <laughs> so so has the has the newsletter always been open access for everyone like public because it seems remarkable to me this this thing is is how many pages long 300 and a lot
3: yes yeah, so this <laughs> this this uh most recent one which is the seventh and oldest newsletter in the series uh is um i think the technical term is a lot of pages yeah <laughs> 334
0: <laughs> by my reckoning i'm not
3: sure pages. that's a that's
0: a newsletter anymore that's uh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a, it's a yeah. book it's a book
3: it, it's a book <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. it's a, it's slightly um, longer than my thesis will be.
3: <laughs> yeah, you need you need some more chapters. What is it? Only yeah. 11? I know.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's only 11. Weak performance. Yeah. Weak. Very, it's because Weak. it's because chapter 11 has most of its content in the supplements. So
3: <laughs> you can yeah. include, you can include the supplements if you want to beef up your thesis.
0: Yeah, I know, <laughs> but I don't. That's the I, I'm trying to save money. It costs a fortune to have the thing printed here
3: anyway <laughs> so so yeah the annullist newsletter has always been always been open access and it's not peer-reviewed it's open for everyone to submit any of their thoughts and everyone should take everything written inside at, at face value and um and, and kind of just use it as a cool uh, cool reference it was never meant as a, a true research journal in any in any way um it was yeah. just the opportunity to kind of float perspectives or float hypotheses about things that you haven't really got any data for, um, just to kind of mm. start a conversation with, with an old biologist. Remember this came out before the internet. So it was a yeah. great way to, to reach people all thinking about the same things. Um, and there's still some, some like classic anolist list newsletter, worthy stuff in there. It's like Tony Gamble and, and Stu uh, Nielsen recently in the recent issue, um, Published an observation of a brown anole foraging on dog feces, you know, which is classic (laughs) newsletter material. (laughs) Where do I sign up? (laughs) But no, it's it's really, really been it's been a a wonderful, wonderful outlet throughout the kind Mm. of the history of the of the field of anole biology, because when so many people use one model system. As a research system, it can be difficult to make sure kind of communication pathways are always open and um, and those yeah. sorts of things. So I think it's nice it's nice to try and make the effort to 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 have a sort of community like that. And in yeah. the first
2: in the first newsletters, there's are, there are you know stuff there that is still the best uh, ecological data we have about some mainland species nothing has been done about those pieces since those papers that papers by kemi yata for example about uh, anolis uh, onca there is another paper mm-hmm. i don't remember by exactly anolis- who, about yeah. ecuadorian uh, the the the, the uh, niche user niche niche usage by um, Ecuadorian and all this which is super interesting. I remember mm-hmm. reading all those papers and saying, why nobody has taken this into you know develop it in the, in the so it's still invaluable. I mean uh, the stuff that yeah, has it's been it's done it, in the anonymous letter is great.
3: I agree. I agree entirely. I think it's a it's a wonderful resource. Um, remember some of the old old contributions by Sandy Ecktnack who's a professor at University of Tennessee. Um, really influenced the way I thought about about sociality in and old systems. Um, and that was just kind of hidden away in, a, in an oldest newsletter. So I think yeah, they're a mine for looking back at kind of past yeah. ideas and past perspectives and, and mm. you know, seeing what people were thinking about. It's interesting as yeah. well to, to look at how the fashion of research changes through time because now there's kind of five decades worth of worth of login of, of people's research interests and, and yeah and that, that, those temporal patterns are quite interesting. How, yeah, I think that's really valuable,
0: is having an insight into into what's going on in these labs because so often it's uh, it's either secretive or it's somehow being um, you know, you only find out what people are working on when it's published, which is often three years after the fact. So mm-hmm. it's nice to have sort of a, a status report of all of the different people in the same place where everyone's just acknowledging, okay, this is what I'm working on. Maybe this is a good place also for you to like build collaborations. And for students, I imagine this is hugely useful because if you know that you want to work on a no now you know which labs are working on the sort of questions that you're interested in. And I mean, that's, that's really invaluable.
3: So I agree. can I agree. you- the, the, the world of science is a, is, a, is a strange place, isn't it? So I, I agree entirely that being as transparent as possible is kind of the best way forward, even though it is a highly productive and a highly competitive uh, field. um, I think you've got more to gain than to lose by just being open and seeing who's doing what and who's available to collaborate. Uh, And this is uh, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity or an outlet for that sort of stuff. So James,
0: tell us about the happenstance that led to this particular newsletter and the reason for the extremely beautiful uh, uh, cover and um, yeah. possibly about its wonderful illustrator Some
2: very very nice cover good question <laughs>
3: Mark um, the cover was okay um, <laughs> so, so the, the cover of the Anolis why am I being seven, bullied this
2: episode why am I being bullied this episode <laughs> the,
3: cover of, of, the cover image of the Enolis Newsletter 7 was um, a, a beautiful beautiful um, picture that was put together by Gabriel and um, for Neil Lozen, can we say that Gabriel? I guess we can. Yeah, to... yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Neil Lozen uh, commissioned it personally, uh, and it, it depicts all of the kind of established non-native and native anoles that are in the Miami region. <laughs> There's a couple of other species that are in Florida, but these are the main ones you'll see if you come to Miami. Um, and it's a wonderful drawing. So it has Jamaican giant anoles, anoles garmani, which are a beautiful species. I think. Possibly my favorite and oldest species in the world. They're just they're gorgeous. They're they're the most kind of like a gamet like of the of the know, a very remind me yeah. of, of like Bronchocela or something. Just they have very ex-
2: expressive eyes. <laughs> like
3: yeah, and they just got a wonderful like dorsal crest and yeah, oh, just a beautiful green lizard. They're just yeah. fantastic, mm-hmm. and they're good um, size too. They're large. They're a good size, but they're not as big as an anolis sequestros, the Cuban night owl, no. which is the next lizard on the uh, on the picture. So the widely recognized as probably the largest and oldest. Um, and they've been in Miami for a long time, originally introduced to the, the Arboretum and New University of Miami a few decades ago. Um, another beautiful lizard with a with a, a kind of strange, paleish white pink julep, despite being a kind of a big robust uh, green lizard. Um, Real, real pretty.
1: Giant, giant head,
3: right? <laughs> huge heads, huge heads, and um, very strong, robust skull. Uh, I think last time we talked a little bit about yeah. the evolution of of thick skulls in yeah um in anoles yeah. and in And we'll, in crown we'll get back to particular. that when we when yeah. we
0: come to that paper.
3: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then there was the, the Hispaniolan Barred Anoles, the only um, anole lizard in Florida that's a member of the trunk ecomorph. Um, I can talk a little bit more about the, the Ecomorph system uh, a little bit later.
2: Anolis disticus. Uh, and then,
3: Anolis disticus, yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, and then the one native species, Anolis um, although uh, Anolis porcatus from Cuba, which is basically the same species, is probably also yeah. present in Miami as well. Um, and then two species which are very, very uh, ecologically and morphologically similar. Um, Anolis cristatellus, the crested anole from Puerto Rico, and Anolis sagrii. The brown and all from Cuba and um, and, the, and the Bahamas, and uh, everywhere, like, well, everywhere else at this point. <laughs> yeah, everywhere yeah else they're, they're there. everywhere now. are uh, some people hate them. I think they're spectacular just because they're so amazingly impressive. They're now a, a global invasive, um, which for a, a small diurnal lizard is uh, hasn't hasn't been achieved by too many species. So um, they're, yep. they're 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 m- remarkable lizards.
0: Yeah, in fact, should, um, yeah. I'm just realizing that of the invasive species that we know among lizards, uh, especially among arboreal lizards, how many of them are are diurnal? I mean, the felsuma, um, two different, three different felsuma species on o- Hawaii. Mm-hmm.
2: And here, we have two. Uh, and it, and, 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 and there more. as
0: well, of course, yeah. But... Um,
2: Everything what, you say, what we're else have is there? Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I
1: immediately thought of, of uh, well, you said diurnal, so yeah, yeah. exactly. So, it Rules out
0: like hemidactylus, and yeah, I was, thinking, I all was of he the other. I was went to hemidactylus, but then but those yeah. you know, it's like yeah. he's yeah. the night shift, and, uh, and all of these things. Most of them are nocturnal, and I wonder yeah, why that mm-hmm. is. Maybe the nocturnal yeah. ones are just yeah. more likely to get accidentally packed into crates and shipped off during the day
3: yeah I, potentially yeah like or maybe, maybe I, they're I, just they're just not as disturbed by being locked away in a, in a nighttime mode for a few weeks while they're getting travel while they're traveling around the world um yeah there's very few diurnal <laughs> lizards which are which are massive massively successful invaders uh, brown and i i think i think take the award the award is the most successful yeah mm.
2: but some of those other lizards that are successful that are diurnal Are also anolis, but not as successful as the brown anolis. So, Mm. because you have, you know, you have several introduced populations of the green of anolis carolinensis. You have several Mm. introduced populations of anolis uh, cristatellus, which is the Puerto Rican crested anolis. So, all of those have several introduction, introduced populations, but not as many and as worldwide as the brown anolis.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely, absolutely. I wrote a paper once reviewing the global distribution of anolis carinolensis, and they, they kind of pop up all over all over the world outside of their native distribution. Um, a couple of failed introductions in Europe, so no anole is found in Europe just yet.
1: Oh, what about yeah. the, I was going to say Italian wall lizards. I guess would they're yeah. are they diurnal? Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: but
0: yeah, they're they are diurnal. very but so diurnal. To... But they're they're not arboreal. No. That and was my very, second well, I mean, stipulation. Yeah,
2: well, they're sort of, of, they're they're kind of sort they're, they're not completely terrestrial either.
0: Yeah. They're saxicolous. <laughs> they're yeah, they're, they're,
2: they're saxicolous, but I mean, it's in the name,
1: so you know. Yeah.
2: No, they're not saxicolous. They're <laughs> saxicolous. <laughs> <laughs>
3: They're in yeah, no, no, Long they're, they're, they're doing pretty well. Yeah, so uh, um, I'm currently sitting next to in my office uh, uh, a young man called Colin Donoghue who's worked oh, yeah. on Podarsis. Colin! In in! Yeah, he's worked on Pedasis in both the United States and in, in uh, Greece. So um, he, you should have like him on Colin the show to talk, talk about all lizards. He's fantastic. We,
0: we want to have him on the show. I have the, a very embarrassing story related to Colin, which is also related to this podcast. So I'm um, sure he would sure I met,
3: love it if you if you told it to the public. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's about me. The, it's embarrassing on my part, not on his part. So I met him at uh, at the Evolution Congress in Montpellier last year, and uh, he was standing next to this poster which uh, he was presenting, and I went up and I was like, "Oh, you do you do all kinds of uh, of a list things? Oh yeah, you know I heard about this." Um, this hurricane study where the anoles wound up on the thing and <laughs> so I was explaining to him how I'd heard about this study and he was like yeah that's my study I did that that's me <laughs> and I was like oh no <laughs> humiliating well, uh, well, this was the the leaf blower thing
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 and then I asked and... him
0: what it was yeah exactly and then I asked him what it was like to bring the leaf blower with him um, on the airplane and stuff so that's my embarrassing story with um, with Colin. But he's great. Yeah, we'd love to have him on the show at some point.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he can't answer for him, but I'm sure he'd be happy to. He's a top guy. I think he'd really enjoy chatting with him.
0: Yeah. Okay, get him well... Bring, get him to bring the leaf blower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just have an hour of... <laughs>
3: it's a demonstration. That also, it, that also goes to show both his talent, but also just the the general importance of of communicating science, right? Because that video just was spectacular in being able to- Yeah, it blew everyone away.
2: (laughs) (laughs) To (laughs) watch (laughs) people. Yeah,
3: no, it was great. It was a really, really um, lovely way to communicate your science.
2: That went viral,
3: like-
0: Yeah, like like, a whirlwind. (laughs) Mark, you
2: have to stop, Mark. (laughs) Stop, Mark, yes. (laughs) somebody stop
0: mark (laughs) okay we can we can stop me by starting to actually dive into this contents of the of the contents of this thing that we've been dancing around so there are a lot of articles in here a lot Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know how many chapters but many many chapters so obviously we can't talk through all of them but
3: i will say as well that so the Anolis newsletter this time um came about right now um because we had an an symposium Mm -hmm. Last year, last spring, um, in Fairchild Tropical Botanic Gardens in Miami, um, which has a very, very rich community um, of non-native anoles, so it was wonderful to have a, a a kind of anoles-specific meeting while being able to walk around and look at anoles um, in natural habitat, albeit not native habitat, but na- natural <laughs> yeah. natural well, they do, as well.
2: They do have sort of like a native area on one side, but most of the of the you know. It's a botanical garden, so they have plants from everywhere, but wild. they have a,
3: that's true. Life. But
2: true. that's Miami. Nothing really is in the wild. <laughs> I every, mean, ev- every,
3: <laughs> everything. Everything is everything is novel. everything's synthetic. The trees aren't everything from there. Everything is from everywhere. Yeah. Birds aren't from there. The lizards aren't from. Listen, there. Half the bugs ha-
2: you, you see, an, I wasn't an from there.
3: You're not from there.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a combination of people from everything. Uh, you have a, an agama, a red-headed agama, next to a Puerto Rican crested and another both perch on a baobab tree. That's how it mm-hmm. is. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Oh, on it's the won- topic wonderful. of
0: baobabs, have you heard that all the baobabs are dying?
2: Ugh. Oh, Mark, sorry, we need the that'll bring it down. down. <laughs> Madagascar's <laughs> largest
0: baobab was hit by lightning earlier this year, oh. and um, it lost three of its five branches. So, yeah, it's just not a good. It's not a great time. While well, we're talking least, about invasive uh, invasive uh, biology and the rest of the Anthropocene. Um, yeah. At least the Great Barrier
1: Reef's doing all right.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, let's talk about chameleons. Yes. Wait. Before we talk about chameleons, let's get it out of the way, James. What do you What do you think? First of all, two important questions about about words. Question
2: number one: Anola. Annol oh or Annalee? <laughs> I'm gonna have to go through this every episode. So,
3: I, I, I think Christ. what I said last time is, is I'm currently engaged to a Venezuelan and not who isn't Gabriel, and Gabriel is Venezuelan, <laughs> so I know it's not wise to argue
2: with them. <laughs> By the way, just a, so just a, side, what, what, just, a side, no, just a quick side note, have you have, have has she found any place up there to have arepas?
3: No, but we make them a lot.
2: Oh, okay. also like yeah, yeah. they're not yeah. that hard to Okay. I had that question we, early in my mind and I had to
3: Then we walk the dangerous bridge of turning up and then they make Colombian arepas and then Oh no, you know, that's not all good. He'll, all
2: <laughs> yes, no, that's not <laughs> good. Are Colombian arepas are not arepas. There, oh my God! Yeah, do, do, do.
1: <laughs> well, I guess we can cross those fans off of our. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs>
0: so, but I think the last time you also said that you pronounced it the correct way. <sighs>
3: <Yes>. Jesus Christ! <laughs> yes. <sir. laughs> I, 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 I say anole, but I come from England, and we don't have any any anoles there. So, who knows who's right? And an anole is, is a Caribbean. <laughs>
2: It's a it's a Caribbean word from a Caribbean, it's Indian, a carib word. Can- no, what it's, you a say. Ta-ino. it's a Taíno. It's a Taíno. I think it's a Taíno. It's a Caribbean word, whatever. It's from Native American. Yeah. That was translated yeah. to French. It's freaking these people. Okay, but whatever. It, it Let's means, move on.
3: It means that thing with the dewlap. <laughs>
2: exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, so yeah, so I, I say I say that, an old, which I think is the most most broadly used term. It is definitely
0: yeah. the most widespread. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, most people give you know pronounce a- axolotl incorrectly, yeah,
4: and Hiloderma
0: and uh, or at least Hila monster, with yeah. all of that. So,
4: yeah.
0: what are you going to do about it? The second thing is, what's your opinion on uh, on <laughs> the splitting of anolis?
3: Um. Well, so we talked about this at great length last time, and I can't remember exactly the answer I gave. I think I'm still sitting on the fence, just balancing precariously of where we <laughs> left off last time. Um, last time you gave a very
2: politically correct answer.
0: You did give a very politically correct answer. Let's,
3: let's, uh, let's salvage that recording.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we can't because
3: yours is the bit that we don't have. <laughs> oh, exactly. <yeah. laughs> <got that>. <laughs> Uh, really, uh, so I've always been more of a lumper than a splitter. Um, but I'm really not involved in the debate too personally. I'm much more of a, an ecologist and evolutionary biologist. Um, I know I know people on both sides arguing either either point, and um, everyone has a everyone has a valid point. At the end of the day, as we sequence more and more genomes of different species, uh, Anthony Geneva at Harvard is now working on a handful of species and doing incredible work with it. Um, I think we're gonna be able to kind of understand phylogenetic relationships at a much deta- deeper and more detailed level than before. So yeah, you know, I'll leave that I'll leave that argument to other people.
2: <laughs> Let's point out that some of these genera are separated by more than I, I I don't want to commit commit the same error that Mark did on last episode, but there, but there are several 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 millions of years, so its a like long, tens of millions of years yes yeah, like
0: yeah. A I long mean the, time. I mean the genus at the moment the genus anolis is synonymous with the family Dactyloa, and that <laughs> cannot be right. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just we, ridiculous yeah so. I mean, and there's like, for example, Cameliolus, which we're going to get to, is such a dramatically different animal. I cannot see, like, you can use the common name Anol for it, but giving it the genus Anolis seems entirely counterproductive. And especially because on the mainland, there are only two different genera anyway. So,
2: yeah. On the you mainland, know. we have Dactyloa, which is part of the. Alpha section of Anolis, and we have norops, which is is the only beta section of Anolis. So um, it's 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 the in the, in the mainland we have no problem. I mean,
0: yeah, m- and they're not like ninety nine percent of can the be time distinguished they look very from each similar each other too. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It's so the- Mark anyway. James James stays quiet because he doesn't want to be part of this in <laughs> any way, shape, or form. <laughs>
4: Uh, I don't, I
2: don't I'm know. just, I'm, I I'm, I'm just
1: enjoying about. the nerd rage that yeah. you know, this inspires every time.
2: I'm just, to be honest, you know. I don't understand why this evokes such passion from certain people. <laughs> it's just yeah. they go crazy about it, and I was like, yeah. I don't understand well, why. I think, I think there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with having strong
3: feelings about science, particularly if you devote your life to to something. Yeah, but so. some
2: of the of the positions taken on both sides has have been I mean there are some things that I'm gonna comment here off the record can I can I I'm, I' I'm not gonna say it right now because we're recording but yeah. <laughs> but uh, there are some responses that uh, wow you know you really said that in a response and uh, there was a I, I'm just gonna show but yeah
3: <laughs> I, I, I think I think I think some of some of the literature might have been a little bit unfortunate. Um, yes. in, in how it how it came across. Um, but I think, on the whole, the debate is healthy.
2: Like comparing pop singers? I'm, not, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not going to say anything yeah, else. Well, there was a famous uh, comparison. <laughs> See, James knows what I'm talking about. There was a famous <laughs> comparison of pop singers that was a little bit... Wow. But okay.
3: Well, yeah. I mean... Anyway, in the world, world of we, taxonomy, we, we, we can all agree that I was a beautiful lizard. So that's the that's the most important. <laughs> that's neither here nor there, my friend. <laughs> that's funny because I, that's exactly where I am. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, now, I think um, I think it's really funny how how quickly people start pointing fingers and and using uh, like and calling people names in in the literature, which is just. I mean, there is no person who is greater at this than the great king of insults in scientific publications. Uh, Well, scientific here in in inverted commas, yeah? Yeah? Oh, boy. Yeah, we're
1: going to go with, yeah.
0: Who likened certain scientists to Isis in one of his most recent publications. Yeah. So, you know. Not to
1: mention naming shit after his
3: dog and...
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, those yeah. those offences aside, it's much more relevant to talk about. But, you know, So, the, as far as the, I know, people are show. having
3: to take a board, take on board Malayo python, right? That was like uh, one of the unfortunate outcomes. I don't know outcomes. what the
0: situation is with malayo python, but um, yeah, it varies. Yeah, it's, it's pretty unfortunate.
2: Yeah. No, I don't. I don't think. about...
0: Well, yeah, I mean, so so this is that's a different podcast. Let's get yes. back to chameleons. <laughs> we've actually we've talked about an, uh, about Hoser before, but the, the gist is we ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist, and we talk about him to his detriment, which is really really great fun. So the chameleons paper, very short little or, or paper note thing, mm-hmm. very short little contribution,
3: but.
1: Can we can we just cover uh, briefly what chameleolus is because I had to I had to look it up last time.
3: Yeah, so and uh... I'll go I'll go for it. Um, so the chameleolus are uh, a curious clade of chameleon-like anoles sometimes called the giant twig anoles of uh, of of the Caribbean anole communities. Um, really strange the two two of the authors here on this note are yazo Alfonso and Javier Torres which are Cuban guys which Fantastically thrilled about that we got some Cuban contributions because the vast majority of Caribbean and all diversity is in Cuba,
2: yes, they um, have a huge diversity exactly
3: them. so the chameleolus are fascinating because they were only known from Cuba, and there's a few a handful of species in Cuba and they're very, very bizarre lizards as i said they they have a lot of the features that are generally associated with chameleons they're very cryptic they're very well camouflaged they walk like with a weird swaying motion sometimes. They, they move incredibly they're... slowly. Um, yeah, they, they can move their eyes independently.
2: They um, have their um, hands, out, tail.
3: Yeah, they're just bizarre lizards, and they have really weird dentition. They're, they're snail specialists. They have these really large molariform teeth at the back of their jaws for crunching on snail shells. And uh, for a long time, they were just thought to be a pu- like a peculiar- peculiarity of, of Cuba. And then recently... Um, a, a species resembling chameleolus was found on, in Hispaniola, in Dominican Republic. Um, so it's found by a, a Dominican re- uh, naturalist called uh, Miguel Landestoy, um, and then he- described with, with Luke Marler at University of Toronto and a few other people. It was published a couple of years ago in, in The American Naturalist, and it's wonderful. We don't, uh, as far as I know, we don't know the full phylogenetic relationships yet. But there's the opportunity that this is a a brand new convergence story to to add to the anolis uh, tale, and it's just remarkable, a really really exciting yeah. breakthrough in anole biology. Yeah. The, uh, the, really uh, if, an, if that's the case,
2: we don't know if the second convergence we, <clears throat> we
3: we don't know yet. I think it's the the work's still still ongoing with that. But if such a bizarre adaptive form. Is convergent? Then I think that's just just spectacular. It is because it really it is, is a But at the same
2: time, it isn't. And I'm going to tell you why because I brought this I brought this uh, to your attention last time we did the <laughs> recording in the last episode. <laughs> um, uh, the morphology of cameliolis is very very similar to what happens in another anolis genus that used to be a genus but now it's part of tactiloa within anolis, which is called Phenacosaurus. But mm-hmm. if high in the Andes, they look very mm-hmm. similar. It's the same chameleon like body plan. <laughs> right. Prehensile right. tail, really sure. big head with helmet. Some of them get to be large sized although some phenacosaurus are small. Some of them can be very large too. So yep. it's the same and they of course are not closely related to chameleolis at all. So mm-hmm. but they got to a similar body plan as well. Sure.
3: Well I I think it's still fair to say it's 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 a rare body plan um yeah, this, yeah this, there's what, several hundred species species of a null, and it's really just those two groups which kind of resemble each other that we know of of course it could have been lineages that came and went um that we don't yeah. know about um
0: so what i find fascinating is also that the um uh, the the twiganoles really strongly resemble also some other chameleon species like the, the thing that we associate with chamele- chameleolus being so um, chameleon like is that it has a very large head and it has yeah. some of the same sort of ornamentation and stuff. So, what d- are you thinking? So, uh, what do you mean? It chameleon genera,
3: yeah, yeah, like or, yeah. Also. So,
0: uh, well, Rampholian does this, Rampholian spinosis is an example, but most uh-huh. notably is the com- Columnazutum group, All oh, right, which yeah, are yeah, very yeah, thin, yeah, very yeah, yeah, yeah. long. Yeah. Um, wow. Chameleons that Beautiful are business. also twig specialists, and one of the things that they do, which I imagine, I don't know if this is true, but I um, imagine that the twig specialists and gnolls also do this, is that when they, are, um, they see a predator, they, they almost always are on a twig that is slightly narrower than the breadth of their eyes. And they will move to the other side of the twig, and then have their eyes poking around, <laughs> and they can they can look at you, and you can't see their body, just their two yeah, eyes. I have a fantastic. really nice photo of this, and yeah. um, so they, you know, the,
2: the,
0: they're but just amazing lizards. They're really you know cool.
2: who does that a little bit, and they used to be considered related to anoles, but are not anymore. Polychrus, Polychrus does that. Polychrus mm. also who is yeah. who has some chameleon-like features. They they usually go to the opposite side of the trunk of the of the branch where they're at and they they also have chameleon like eyes which they can move independently and they can and they see that actually they have they make it so that their body they compress it by uh yeah so that they don't they don't become larger than the than the branch they are
0: laterally yeah yeah, yeah.
2: so it Gabriel, was, do, you, do you know we have we found polychrus in Florida. You told me that, and I'm, I wasn't yeah. asked after the show. The, uh, I wanted to tell me where.
3: It was the first record of Polychris anywhere outside their native distribution. Marmoratus, it, right? Cool. Um, Marmoratus, because it's yeah, a, the only so. one
2: they you can see. Well, Marmoratus, yeah. which is a complex. It's a species complex. Yes, one yeah, of the. Yeah, yeah. I, I work with Polychris and stuff. Well, we'll talk about that another day. But uh, yeah. let's stick <laughs> to the Camelliole thing. Yeah,
0: we, yeah. Can, we can get back to the Camelliole story now. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> good point. So, so the interesting
2: thing about this paper is that they says that camellolus has these uh, fluorescent tubercles that are similar to what it, what Mark described for chameleons.
0: Right. So I was involved in this paper um, last year, which was part of uh, last year. Yeah, I think it was last year. Yeah. yeah, yeah March March last year. Um, which was like the crowning chapter in my colleague David Putz's um, PhD thesis. He, um, mm, basically a photograph appeared online by a photographer called Paul Bertner, who is, or uh, Paul Bertner, I think he's, um, he's uh, a Canadian. <laughs> I'm out. I have
2: to go get more. I made that
0: same mistake last time. <laughs> um, so Paul Bertner is, a. he was in Madagascar. He had his UV flash uh, torch with him and was, um. He usually uses it for insects and stuff, but he happened to shine it on a chameleon. And he posted this picture on Flickr of a chameleon with these beautiful, tiny blue spots around its eyes. And David was like, huh, that's weird. Which and species so he was went that again? And we went and looked in the. That's uh, Calumma gastrotinia. Okay. Which beautiful. is one of the. It's a beautiful green, I mean, completely solid green chameleon with a very pointy face um it actually probably of all of the things looks most like uh some of the big green knolls, like in terms of its its gross morphology um so gastrotinia only has these tiny spots but if you, it, when we went and we looked in the in the collection we realized that most of the big crests on a lot of these chameleons fluoresce like crazy so especially in groups like the um uh, Coloma brevicorn group. Uh, many of the of Coloma, especially, have these very clear crests and the crests uh, fluoresce. And then, um, so you you shine UV light on them and they fluoresce very strongly. And um, then we did a sort of a broad survey. We realized that this is really widespread in in chameleons. In fact, in in Burkiesia, um which are the the leaf chameleons, which are the like the the most basically divergent group of chameleons that are alive today. Um they have something of a weird sort of, of fluorescence where their skin is so thin that the fluorescence is on bones that are not visible. So you can see like ribs and and things through now, their now skin, which is crazy.
1: Didn't you say the last time we had this discussion <laughs> that uh
0: all bone fluoresces? Yeah. So this is this is true. So this is um in So we know from forensic science that pretty much all bone fluoresces. Some bones fluoresce different colors than others, but in general, pretty much all bones fluoresce, which means um, that this, this potential is there. And the question is, how is it being realized? Uh, so, so basically, everything you have fluorescent things, if you want to use it for signaling, um, how do you make it visible? Because it's bone, it's hidden, right? Um, and what we realize in chameleons is that what you're seeing, especially in these large bodies, so less, in, less in the leaf chameleons, but in these large body chameleons, we realize that the scale has a transparent sort of window where these tubercles on the bone, these raised bits of bone, are pushing up, making the scale thinner and thinner. And then it actually displaces all of the pigment cells. And what you get is a window straight onto the bone through which the, the fluorescence can take place. And and in chameleons, we think that this is something that's really um, localized and specifically adaptive, which is why you get these really strong and clear crests.
2: Which is what and you think the, is different from what's happening in chameleolus. Exactly,
0: right? and and that is something that is very different from what we see in chameleolus. So if you look at the pictures in in this um, in the newsletter on page six, you have a comparison of a chameleon fluorescence side-by-side um, side with chameleolus fluorescence, and what you see is that the chameleon fluorescence is really strongly localized in these particular ridges. You have it along the temporal ridge, along the parietal crest, above the eyes, especially in the area, the circle around the eyes, and each of these is a single scale. You, uh, almost all of them are single scales, and they're all associated with a single bump sort of on the, on the scales. Whereas if you look in the chameleolis, especially if you look in the micro CT scan, which is uh, the picture above, you see it's just it seems haphazard. There's no real pattern to it. And what you see on the top of the head is these um, hyperossification signs. So these sort of ridges that form on bone when you get bone super reinforced, it gets these really strong ridges, especially when the skin on uh, the skin and the bone. Are sort of fusing with one another, which has the side effect of showing the um, the bone through it, which can allow it to fluoresce. But it doesn't necessarily have the same adaptive function.
2: Well, that's why my question. So it doesn't, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't use it for that purpose also, because even if it's not, it could be co-opted. Yeah, exactly.
0: It could be co-opted. But I think it's a more it's a, a simpler explanation to say that because these things presumably are doing some kind of like they they have some reason why their skull is so reinforced. If you look at the skull of this thing, it's crazy. It's like it almost looks like it's got cancer. It obviously doesn't. But like this is what bone cancer looks like in humans when it just starts going nuts. Um, and they have these this. Hyper ossification that is presumably actually involved in, you know, may, maybe it's involved in male male competition and they have a lot of like bite force that they have to withstand or um, or predation pressure.
2: Yeah. James may have something to say about that because it's, yeah, co- I, it's common I, in many analysts to have this yeah, ossification. I, I,
3: I think you're absolutely right. I don't think, and we should say here that the authors that, that put forward this note didn't directly make the link between identifying these patterns and, and suggesting that it could be um correct yeah yeah yeah. they were just saying this is an interesting observation Yeah, we we found this and we don't really know what it means and and here it is make make what you want of it um i i think uh for a lot of the reasons mark was just talking about um it isn't used for communication although it might be i think it's unlikely i think the reason is is these lizards they fight a lot and they fight very aggressively. And the way they fight is um, to try and basically bite each other's heads and kind of chomp down on their heads. And that led to the evolution of such reinforced, especially on the, the dorsal side of the head, such massively reinforced skulls. If you look at any of the, the crown giant anoles, so that's a, a group of anoles that live high in the tree, so like the Jamaican giant anole or the Cuban knight anole, live high up in the tree and they're large. They have incredibly tough skulls. If you touch them, they're just imm- immaculately solid. And and they're also amazingly aggressive. So when they fight, they try and grab each other's heads, crunch down on the skulls, fling each other from the tree. And so I think the real adaptive power of of this is just, it's a strong head and there's no flesh there because they
2: bite, they get bitten on there all the time.
0: Exactly. So, even, option, even, so you have even, these co
2: scales. Even adult yeah, it, male, green and all these have very thin oh, amazing
3: amazingly rich there's, there's yeah. nothing there's no muscle there there's no flesh there there's nothing it's just skin and bone because yeah. uh it would obviously be less adaptive to have anything there because they do just really crunch on each other's heads uh when they're having agonistic aggressive interactions yeah yeah so i, I, yeah, I, so I, I, I mean I, I think it's a byproduct of the of of in- of in fact in fact kind of evolving a loss of tissue and a loss of muscle there that you can then see the bone through the skin uh, rather than that being a driving factor of it
0: yeah yeah now I, I i totally agree i think that this is um it's a really interesting observation and one that is also consistent you know we since since we published this paper about chameleons um we've had loads of different things like i know that david has been invited to review various different papers where people have been like oh look this gecko fluoresces but Frost. what you're seeing is There's just frog, geckos uh, have transparent uh, skin yeah. so what you see is the skeleton the question is is there is it possible that this is an adaptive function
2: and you know, tr- if it's
0: a nocturnal gecko, your likelihood is going down a lot. Same with so, Boana
2: Boana punctata of the Exactly the, the South American tree frog that also fluoresces. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah no, so boana was, 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 was a really skin, interesting yeah, case. The, it was the, 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 the skin right on the, the boana.
2: It was not the bones, it was the skin in boana, right? I don't remember. Yeah, so,
0: It's in in Boana, it's actually like everything about the animals because they're producing a particular uh, chemical (laughs) that that fluoresces. Um, But in fact, the authors who published that paper in their next contribution were like, so in the first paper, they were like, oh, this obviously must have some kind of adaptive function. And then the next paper they wrote was like, "Mm, maybe not. So everybody is sort of hedging at the moment. Sure. Do uh do do we know if osteoderm type integument
1: fluoresces? It, yeah, it, you know. so
0: it does. Yeah. So this is a thing uh, if you go and look at a, a shelter pusic of the um <laughs> oh, cool is <lizards>. uh,
2: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <if> <laughs> finally said lizards. It in the correct way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> glass lizards. so what the fuck is that? Yeah,
0: European glasses, dudes. <laughs> um they fluoresce as well, but they only fluoresce because uh, like all of their scales are completely ossified. Yeah, right. um, and I think it will depend quite a lot on on how thick the um if there is a pigment layer on top of the scale and whether that's you know blocking out the the osteoderm or whatever it's it's difficult to say um but there have been loads of observations now. Some published as tiny notes. Sometimes some that are still coming. I'm sure um, that all kinds of things are fluorescing. Uh, but the question is, how many of these really look to be adaptive? And in chameleons, I think we have a pretty strong case that um, that it's it looks like it's getting towards something that could be adaptive. The case um, for it
2: to be adaptive, I would imagine, is uh, it has to be. Looked because all these animals, all reptiles, have very good vision in general, much better. And chameleons
0: than, have excellent color vision. Yeah,
2: much much better than our vision, mammals, and we as humans have good vision for a mammal, and it sucks compared to ones from reptiles in general. And with reptiles, I include birds. So uh, you know, so th- there might be more than that. More than meets the eye, first. See, I did uh, a, uh, I did a, uh, I did a uh. mark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, yeah, and I think you know, from from chameleons, it's astonishing how much we don't know about their vision. Like the most famous like visual model in the world, probably, arguably, um, but we have no idea how well they can see because the only public, the, the only studies that have ever been published on this were published like twenty years ago use old methods and, and have relatively weak-looking results. And so, um, yeah, there's so much that we don't understand about how chameleons are seeing. The, the anatomy, the detailed anatomy of chameleon eyes has never been described, which, is, which blows my mind completely. We have a, a student who's actually sort of working on that. Um, but, yeah, no, so it's the, the situation with, like, getting that toward an adaptive explanation is, is going well. We're getting somewhere, um, but we need the behavioral experiments. That was the big, the, the biggest, um, uh, criticism of that paper. And the answer was simply, you know, um, we can't do that, we don't have the, the facilities here to do the experiments. And doing the experiments in Madagascar is, um, very, very difficult under the field conditions, so. Um, it needs to happen, but not not in the next ten years.
3: <laughs> it's, it's tropical biology. It's hard to do any experiments exactly. in the tropics.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
3: So there, um, there are a few more
0: chapters that I would love to discuss in detail. Uh, Gabriel, say, is there we, anything
3: we're doing pretty well? I mean, an hour and a half, and we got we got past the first out of forty ish uh, yeah. articles so yeah. <laughs> i'm, I'm yeah. liking the, you... the progress is, is solid it's going it's going really well i think i have um, some meetings tomorrow morning i'm just gonna push them back now preemptively
0: <laughs> <laughs> i think we're i think we're on schedule to be just over two hours yeah, so sure. we we have to see we have to see but gabriel were there any was there any um uh, paper that you really oh, yes. wanted to I, I,
2: there was a paper, really quickly, that I, the Clements at all paper or or, mm-hmm. or, or, or article um, about the non-native herpetofauna dominating uh, habitat patches, urban habitat patches in Miami, or like not not urban, but like the few sort of uh, remnants of native habitat patches that we have in Miami-Dade County, uh, are completely. It starts on page twenty-two. Yeah, it's, it's, it's are basically completely devoid of any native herpetofauna, and they're just occupied by non-natives. And the reason for that is not really competition from not, non-natives; is the you know that they cannot really sustain themselves in such small patch. The native fauna cannot really sustain itself in those small patches of vegetation of, of 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 habitat left, uh, and then this. I bring this because um, I thought it was a really cool, uh, cool study done about that. And, and we've discussed this before in previous episodes where we said that, you know, most of people have, even though there's a lot of yellow press and some actual cases of int- non-native exotics invading natural habitats, by far most of the non-native species stay in urban or around urban environments because they are not able to colonize natural habitats.
3: Well I think they, they probably are able to colonize. I think it's just for the most part um, most introduced species are introduced into areas um, that um, you know have high anthropogenic a- activities in. that's how that's, that's the vector of, of how they arrived into a new area anyway so I think all the founding populations are always associated with with anthropogenic settlements. Um, I think natural environments. For the most part, are just as just as invasible. Is that a word? Mm-hmm.
4: Invadable. <laughs>
3: Invadable. Yeah, that's a that's a better word. <laughs> no, I mean, that's I the what, correct I don't, I don't one. Know, so, like any any but, of the knolls to keep it to keep it on topic specifically here, any of the knolls that you find in um, any parks within Miami-Dade County, there's no reason whatsoever that they can also colonize similar structural habitat outside of a. If it existed,
2: but they they don't exist. Those kind of habitats for those and all these generally don't exist. And I would imagine they would have expanded. I mean, uh, (coughs) iguanas, for example, Uh, green iguanas. Uh, (laughs) Something (laughs) happened to James. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He fainted. (laughs) (laughs) Green iguanas, what? Green iguanas (laughs) are basically all over, and they would have had the opportunity to, to expand to natural habitats. They really haven't. For the most part, it's not mm-hmm. like you can go to the Everglades and you see iguanas everywhere, rampant. Like you see them nonstop yeah. from the Keys yeah, to West Palm Beach. They are
1: diurnal and arboreal, though. <laughs>
2: yeah, but they don't really. They, Very good point. They don't really, they, you know, uh, they don't really <laughs> expand to native habitats, and that's a common thing that happens with species that are widely distributed throughout. Urban areas in South Florida, and you would say, well, they have the possibility to go to non to natural habitats, and they just don't. Basilisk, brown bass is another example. Curly tails, <laughs> another example. Yeah, well, I think
3: well, both iguanas and bassless are, are highly linked to kind of streams and rivers. So I think that's one of the things. I, th- I think so. I think we just disagree on it. I think they will get there eventually. I think there's there's no kind of biotic reason why they're not doing it. Um, I think it it will happen. Wouldn't eventually. they have already? Oh, maybe they just haven't. Maybe there's just some just some contingency. There's just some reasons why they, why they haven't done it very well. Um, if you go to Everglades National Park and you stop at any parking lot on the way down, you see brown anoles, bark anoles, green iguanas and stuff.
2: No, not you the- green iguanas. Yeah, you've seen green iguanas in there. In the Everglades? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've seen them in there. I have never seen a greeny one in the Everglades. Yeah. yeah I have seen, seen i <laughs> seen brown anoles <laughs> so and bark anoles start bark Anolis start to disappear. Yeah, so I've even even seen brown Anolis, even seen brown anoles
3: out on tree islands like a Oh good, yeah, no brown Anolis a are kilometer, five kilometers, 10 that's, kilometers out into the Everglades. They're just That's for spectacular, sure. ones
2: I've never seen a green one out there. But
3: Yeah. No, so I, I, I just I think it's just a matter of time. Um I don't there's there's probably some species which prefer um the Sort of habitats that are available within the, the greater Miami right. urban landscape, but for the most part, I think it's all very similar stuff.
2: We're gonna completely I mean,
3: disagree on that one, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's absolutely fine. <laughs>
1: well, Gabriel, it is possible for things to you know invade.
2: Oh, I'm upward. sure, but, like, but 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 even if they do, it, w- it will not be as effective as they have been. Well, I'm saying that there are some that know, do. have you
1: seen that? Have you seen the well, actually, that's a case. I was I was thinking of armadillos where. You look yeah. at the map of the
2: you know but that's, an projected... that, but that's yeah. but that's an animal that actually was there before. I was just going to say it it's actually recolonizing. Okay. Exactly. But
0: better better and more herp relative uh, example. What about the um, Burmese python maps? But
2: that's what yeah. were... well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, were. Yeah. mean they were just
0: really it was really badly modeled, really really badly modeled uh, yeah. of the distribution potential distribution of these animals. Um, but yeah, there's no way that the Burmese python is going to spread from Florida over to Texas. And, I'm sorry. There,
2: there, there are some <laughs> cases in which those, in my experience and point of view, there are some, some cases where, yes, exotics do expand to native habitats. One of those cases is the Burmese and the other python that we have here. We have two pythons. Both of them have invaded those natural places. Also, tegu lizards seem to be invading natural places. Uh, monitor lizards, to an extent, although the population is very yeah, still st-
3: still pretty localized.
2: It's yeah, it's very localized, and they haven't expanded. Although people were going crazy when they just found monitor lizards, they was they're gonna go all, all over the state, they're gonna <laughs> kill everything. Still,
1: they have. Well, and I think, and it doesn't. It kind of gets more complicated when you're when you're also talking about some of those animals are have been urban specialists, even in their native. Like I'm thinking, toke geckos are. Mm-hmm known yeah. for seeking out human habitation
2: anyway geckos are good at perianthropic you know areas. Yeah. so
3: it's bizarre so I found like old old farming huts in the middle of tropical rainforest in in Indonesia and there's a pair of tokes sitting in it <laughs> 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 like, like hours and hours and hours walk from the nearest anything and uh, yeah. yeah they're just yeah. sitting
2: in there underneath underneath this old old hut
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, yep, but see, I've had the, very
0: similar experiences.
2: <laughs> so stuff like toke geckos, or... I mean, do you really see a night and only living in the Everglades? Uh, Yeah, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. Where? In the hammocks? A hundred percent
3: they'd live in the hammocks, without a doubt. If they could get to a tree island, they'd be absolutely fine. But yeah, they'd love a hammock. So... so know, is- a ham- hammock is like a very dense, subtropical uh, forest.
2: Yeah, maybe I those. was
0: wondering.
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, the
0: hammock, it's it, it's all the a, tourists have just so, left their hammocks hanging. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, basically,
2: it's basically the only sort of closed canopy forest we have here. Because otherwise, we mm. just have pine rocklands, which are not really closed yeah. canopy. And so now that's so, interesting.
3: So, how it have- succeed from pine rocklands without fire? So, that, that's kind of how those ecosystems work.
4: Yeah.
1: It sounds like you're describing islands
3: almost. Like, are they. Well, yeah, so, 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 due so good, to construction. Good point. Good point. I, didn't, I didn't really explain that. So the Everglades is a, is a fascinating system. So it's a huge, huge, expansive, but really shallow river that moves really, really slow. And it's completely um, covered by grass. So the flow is kind of minimal. You wouldn't even tell it flows. But throughout this just huge wet grasslands, there's uh, little spots of large tree dominated uh, patches. Called tree islands, whereby some substrate will get caught as the as the flow runs south, and eventually more and more substrate will will build up, and then that will turn into kind of a small little island with with trees on. And eventually, those turn into cypress domes and become really really important to the to the ecosystem of the Everglades as a whole. But yeah, you get this.
1: Get Are they actually fairly isolated from each other, like actual <laughs> islands?
3: Would be uh, well, they're, they're a bit curious, right? Because they're they're definitely a, a sort of island structure because there's patches of very different habitat from the the surrounding matrix. Um, but they're not completely isolated. So, I mean, you can you can walk across the grass uh, from one <laughs> to another, and in the dry season, terrestrial animals can move between. Uh, islands quite comfortably. In the wet season, they're covered by water, but green and oil still move through those grass naturally. Uh, so it gives the mm. perception of like a, a big island archipelago matrix system. Um, but it's just yeah. like, yeah, a bizarre, bizarre world. I encourage everyone to go to the Everglades. Not in the summer. It sucks in the well, summer. Well, <laughs> although, you know, this year the mosquitoes
2: never went away, but um, Really? Because there was, yeah, they were never really went away. My, but the, my, the, my
3: first, my first winter, and the mosquitoes stayed, so I'm okay with that. I'm okay being in <laughs> <to> st louis
2: <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a, there was still mosquitoes in January, um, uh, and along the coast, because uh, the Everglades is mostly inland, so a little bit inland within f- southern Florida, but along the coast, we used to have a wonderful, varied system uh, of scrub. Florida scrub, uh, pine rockland, and hammocks, which are these tropical things with gombo limbo trees. Gombo limbo trees are those trees that have like, um, uh, it's difficult to say. Well, it's a kind of tree. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that, but they form sort of these closed canopies, which are as close canopy as you can get in, in here. Um, and, uh, and so they have all these different environments. And they used to be continuous, but due to building and everything, South Florida has been uh, deforested for a very, very long time, and uh, we only have patches left. And uh, through those patches, James says that night and could occupy those patches in the Everglades or what is mm-hmm. left most of the so most of the um, uh, hammocks that are left in South Florida are in the Everglades and James says that things like night anoles could survive on those yeah. if they got there.
3: Yeah. I based that on, so within the Miami urban landscape, there's, there's parks spread around of natural pine rockland, small patches and natural hammocks and stuff. And you get night in hammocks in the urban matrix. So they can exist in that habitat type, but whether they're able to colonize it in, a, a wider kind of natural matrix is is unclear, but I see no reason ecologically why they couldn't persist in that habitat there, just as they do elsewhere. Pine Rocklands are a little bit different because they're very dry, very uh, kind of hot ecosystem. I think brown anoles and green anoles are the only things that do particularly well.
2: And, and let's say that the native fauna of uh, the native herpetofauna of South Florida is Quite depopular to begin with. We don't have that many yeah, native species. Yes, exceptionally
3: depopular. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So mm-hmm. you know yes, there were a lot of empty niches already here um, mm. yeah. that yeah. exotics could occupy. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So I will say as okay. well, that 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 paper by Stephanie Clementson from Chris Cersei's lab at the University of Miami has now just been um, published in in a journal, a peer reviewed journal called Biological Invasions. So. It stood the test of peer review as well, so people can go and read it. And, um, and, it's and a really good wrote, paper. Yeah, I suggest they do.
0: Great, cool. So um, there are at least three more <clears throat> papers that I'd quite like to, to touch on. Um, the first one is that I've just realized on page 224 of oh. the newsletter, the paper by um, Ashley Rossis, R-A-S-Y-S, I have no idea how to pronounce that. Uh, et al establishment of genome editing methods in Enola sagrei that's just blown my mind so I literally two weeks ago had a conversation with a guy who's been u- using CRISPR for years and years and years um, and he was telling me how much of a, nightmo- a nightmare it is to do anything like uh, CRISPR on um, on anything that has non-transparent eggs, because and and that has internal fertilization, because you have to actually apply these methods at the single cell stage, and you can't get to them at the single cell stage because they're laid when they're already you know quite late into into the developmental period. So the fact that they've already figured out basically a way to do this is. Um, that's that's gonna make a lot of really high impact papers.
3: <laughs> yeah. Doug Doug Menke is doing spectacular work. Top, top guy. Wow. So so that, that's come out of his his lab, um Doug Menke's lab. Uh, yeah, yeah. Doing doing really, really cutting edge stuff.
0: That's wicked. Okay. I just wanted to mention that very briefly, because that's that's completely blown my mind. I have to yeah, read that I'm, in more detail I'm sh- later. I'm
3: sure you'll hear a lot more about it in the in the coming years.
0: Yeah, I expect so. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's um, that is really cool. I wanted to talk also about your your ramble. It's a
3: great ramble. <laughs> I quite how, like how, it. How kind of you. <laughs> yeah. So which so one? There's there's a couple.
0: <laughs> the the main hypothesis building one.
3: Um, okay. Yeah sorry i thought it was coming with a question i didn't think i didn't realize you wanted really to coming, to... i mean
0: no i i um i quite like it it's it's a it's another demonstration of the um, the utility of a format like this where it doesn't have to go through peer review and it doesn't have to go through you know it's like a blog post but specifically directed at the people who are going to be interested in it
3: right and, and you're I, able I know, to build I will, I will say right now that we have a, an incredible blog page for yes. this sort of stuff as well which is kind of like the newsletter um kind of supplements it but anola Nows is an excellent um, blog website that we run for for anol biologists and it's kind of a day-to-day of yeah. the Anola newsletter um, but you're right it, it is similar great. sort of format you can just you can talk and talk and talk
0: yeah and you can build the story so i really i really enjoyed that like the, the you're context on twitter. Of being to... is on twitter isn't it
3: yeah yeah so yeah i run the anola now's twitter um uh, handle as oh, well twitter okay. account so it's yeah just an <laughs> announce um and then you can you can get updated with all of the all of your null news <laughs> <laughs> i mean it is a happening
0: field of science i was shocked by how many papers are cu- or how quickly papers are being published in this um in this field it is yes yeah, it's, it's spectacular astounding um,
3: yeah, yeah. It, it can almost be difficult to keep up yeah 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 yeah, there's there's, I mean, a lot, I, there's a lot of very 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 sharp people very smart people doing doing great research
0: yeah yeah no that's um
3: so anyway so, yeah, so yeah, my 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 piece in the newsletter was really an ex a, a kind of a longer synopsis of my uh phd work my graduate studies um i think i got a bit carried away with it and it ended up a little bit cathartic and i just <laughs> i could float some ideas which i had no support for and i can have a little bit of moan about things that i was annoyed about and um and and that's really what I, what I discussed i discussed how i structured my graduate research and how i'm structuring some of my um present my postdoc research on and um within the broader context of why we're interested in anoles so the, we're interested in anoles because they're a great example of something called an adaptive radiation which is which is where a, a Multiple species and multiple multiple lineages diversify from a single common ancestor. Um, so, anoles are spectacular examples of of a really exceptional adaptive radiation. They're very, very species rich and they're very ecologically and morphologically diverse. And what's really cool is on each of the four large islands of the Greater Antilles and the Northern Caribbean, um, adaptive radiations have produced replicated convergent communities of the same sort of habitat specialists, which we call ecomorphs. So it's really um a lot of my research has has gone into understanding like the ecological mechanisms which facilitate coexistence and then the evolutionary consequences of coexistence. Um and I kind of talk through in in this um article a little bit about why I'm interested in what we study and all of the major holes which I think still exist along the way in the story. Yeah. No,
0: it's good also to have, you know, th- this opportunity to to highlight the holes, right? Because uh, especially for people who are trying to develop sort of research profiles and plans, it's great to have other people's thoughts as well on like, what are the big questions and where do we need to go and what could still be done? Because, um, you know, there are almost infinite questions to ask, um, but you have to prioritize somehow and helping to prioritize is seeing other people's thoughts and and it helps you also to sort of structure your ideas. So I, I mm-hmm. really found it, um, of all of, of the papers that I read in detail, I, I think I enjoyed that one the most because it was also um, uh, very helpful for me for sort of understanding um, what it's like working on something where you can actually observe your animals on a day-to-day basis, <laughs> yeah, right. which is very difficult, <laughs> very difficult for me. Um, yeah. But also like, you know, the, the environment and the... I mean, the, just the different—the difference in field, My field is very much based on things that are already dead, and and not really on um, enough on asking super interesting questions. We have some things that are very question based, but um, it's something that I am still sort of trying to wrap my head around. So, yeah, yeah well, no, that was great.
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. it was really really kind of me. <clears throat>
0: But my, I, I have to say, my favorite paper, my actual favorite paper, is this one by. It's, not yours,
2: it right yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not yours, James. It. Yeah, it's not yours. What a way but to But you know which up. one it is. Am I on the way out already?
3: Yeah? <laughs> is that it? is that it's done. I, I wrote twenty pages, and then um, it's just a on the pat on the back and move on to your favorite one. <laughs> oh, I'm, j- I'm joking. I'm joking. Which which one is it?
0: My favorite one is the one about how to build your own lizard lab.
3: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So there's two papers in this, in this newsletter, which I think are exceptionally uh, valuable resources. One um, uh, is from the guys at Harvard about how to build a lizard lab inside. So a lizard breeding room, a lizard colony. Um, and it's just a really, really fantastically detailed um,
2: Doc, Ethan is going to study that paper in detail.
0: <laughs> Ethan is sitting there making like evil plan hands. Yeah. If you want hundreds <laughs> of lizards in
3: Mr. one
2: Burns oh, hands. Yeah. excellent, excellent. excellent. Well, so,
3: so that's supported by a really nice paper as well by Amber Wright in the University of Hawaii, who uh, reviews about how to make field enclosures for an old experiments. So, not only in this newsletter, do we have a great and detailed document about how to maintain a, a lizard breeding colony inside, uh, and all the pitfalls and that comes with it, but also how to set these up into, into enclosures outside. So you can run field experiments, uh, on them. Um, I think they're two yeah, fantastic, fantastic resources in this newsletter.
0: Yeah. I, it's, it's really cool, especially for people who are thinking about, um, you know, I guess people who are in, in later stages of their career where they're thinking about, okay, how can I, you know, set up my own lab or, you know, if, if more people want to work on these sort of things. And it has such broad applicability because it's like, guys are all the resources you need, the space mm-hmm. that's required, all this sort of information that is, um, you know, if you're trying to write a, a grant to get the money to build your own lizard lab, exactly, you have to come up with that sort of information by yourself and, um having it all laid out for you like this is, is a huge help. <laughs> so.
3: No, exactly. And there's very few places, uh, in the published literature where something like that could be published. Um, so exactly. this was a, this is a wonderful outlet for that sort of thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sort of a practical guide to starting your own lizard lab.
3: Yeah. Right. And yeah. I mean, uh, more and more people are, are, are setting up lizard colonies and making, making big breed breeding populations and no one really had that sort of article to hand. So when you're trying to negotiate yeah. startup money to start your new lab up, um, there wasn't really that kind of publicly available resource out there for you to base a framework on. So now it's easy. You can put numbers to it and say, this is what other people have done and this is what I'm going to need to get going. So, yeah, no, it's great. Exactly. Those, those guys deserve a yeah. lot of credit for that because I'm sure it could be a thankless task putting together something like that. And it's, it's a really, really useful paper.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's going to get, you know, quite a bit of um, – citations, perhaps not in the, in the published literature, but at least in grants um, yeah, right. <laughs> that are, that are going to be submitted. I mean, uh, I can certainly imagine using it in a few years' time. So
3: when you, really move, cool. when you move on to annuls.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 we
3: to
2: the dark side.
3: At the moment, I'm looking
0: more closely at Spherodactylus than annuls. Oh. But yeah, we can talk about that another time. I mean, last,
1: anoles, anoles kind of are the cichlids of lizards. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, Let's, yeah, so, sorry, I, I guess so
0: it's the other
3: way around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I think actually, I would disagree on both counts. I think that um, that cichlids are much more similar to um, to continental radiations. So, it. it at least the ones in, in places like Malawi and stuff, because, okay, they're, yeah, yeah. The, the lake is relatively young, but it's still the, the size of the system is mm-hmm. much more similar to a continent. I mean, maybe the ones in Nicaragua and stuff that are, um, you know, smaller radiations in these mm-hmm. crater lakes, that's yeah. very similar to, mm-hmm. uh, to yeah. island populations and stuff. Chris, Mar-
3: but, Chris Martin's lab at, at Berkeley are doing some wonderful stuff on the Cameroon crater lake cichlid radiations. Really, really interesting. Oh, yeah. Smaller communities there as well. Yeah, those yeah. explosive radiations in the in Victoria and and the, and the large rift lakes are just exceptional. They're out of this, we are, yeah. we are
1: talking about yeah. adaptive radiation there too. I mean, that's yes, Absolutely, I'm not wrong. right? no, 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 100%. But in, and that, in that is
3: much shorter time Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Because these things are these things are essentially speciating within 200 years, which is just that's nuts that's absolutely mind-boggling completely mind-boggling um so no it's it's an amazing system to study but then you have to wonder about your applicability if you can turn around and say okay these things can speciate in 200 years and most other things are taking like i don't know a million (laughs) um, how how much can we apply these two things to one another which is we
3: we think the annals of kind of almost finished diversifying 40 million years ago. They'd, they'd done their radiation by then. And um, they've been in a, in a prolonged period of stasis in the Caribbean, at least uh, since then. We know from some amber fossils, which Whoa. we've found. Yeah, they, they, they date back to the to the kind of the Miocene, And um, the, the specimens we found look very, very similar to the ecomorphs, which are around today. So, oh. so it was one of the things we've really struggled with, with, uh, with, kind of with knowledge, evolutionary biology is getting good fossils to to really calibrate the early stages of diversification.
0: Well, the fact that you have fossils at all exactly. is a bit I was of a privilege yeah, from my
3: perspective. Yes,
2: it's true. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, 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 all of Madagascar got, uh, has not a single <laughs> fossil of its, yeah. any of its recent fauna. So.
3: Yeah, so the, these fossils are all, all amber specimens and it really goes down to a handful of people who worked exceptionally hard, like trawling private collections and natural history collections all over the world uh, to find them there was a wonderful uh p n s paper a few years ago by emma sherat and it was uh yeah it was great it was really really cool but it it just kind of highlighted that these this diversification ha- happened really early on after colonization colonizing the islands and uh and the ecomore mm. which evolved back then have been around ever since
0: yeah I wonder if they're re like if they can go extinct and then be recolonized again so you get the <clears throat> right, appearance so do, of stasis without yeah. the actual stasis itself
3: sure do you well, have like uh, ephemeral ephemeral lineages subsequently colonizing the same adaptive optima through time yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely uh, we have yeah. to say yeah. that yeah. the ecomorphs were
2: only mostly on the caribbean islands the, in the mainland there are a lot of things happening <laughs> that are not really correlated you know they're not really exactly homologous with the ecomorph in the <laughs> in the Caribbean islands. So
3: yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Ecomorph is, is a phenomena really, um, of the of the just the greater Antillean islands and the large greater Antillean islands of, of the northern Caribbean, the mainland animals, uh kind of are a collection of community of very different ecologically and morphologically uh, looking species. And uh, I think we don't know anywhere near as much about mainland knows as we need to and, and hopefully that will change in the in the coming years there's a lot of that, really sharp the, you know why research. they're much
2: more harder to find they're, they're, they're oh, harder I'm to possible. find in general
3: so i mean like for I've the most to, part not all of them I've looked, yeah i've much. looked in in costa rica and it's it's not bad there it's actually quite nice it's easy to find a handful of the most common species but i've been down into the amazon um right down into the colombian amazon and man, i couldn't find any down there it was and, tough. and that is colombia
2: which is colombia has the most species of analysis of any were, like, yeah, so this, was, yeah, this was was like right 80 something on, on, species.
3: Yeah, it was right down on the border, kind of the tri border of, of Brazil, Peru, and and Colombia down in. That's uh, a nice area. area. Yeah, it's a yeah. beautiful area, but yeah, super, super tough to, to find any anoles down there. Um, it, yeah, just remarkable that, that anyone's done any research on them so far. Tough, tough lizards to work on, compared to the Caribbean anoles, which are really characterized by being incredibly abundant. Yeah. Uh, if you find a population of them they're usually at least the um at least the the kind of trunk ground and So the ones that are not as arboreal and, and a bit more terrestrial uh, are characterized by being incredibly incredibly abundant where you find them
4: yeah one of the mm. most one of the yeah. most
3: peculiar mainland annals which is which doesn't really exist in the caribbean are the uh, the aquatic annals um which were written about in this annulus newsletter so there's two species annulus aquaticus um, Hilary Swirk wrote a wonderful piece about them in this newsletter, and Anolis Oxalophus, and they're, they're both, which Neil Lozen and Nate Dappen had filmed, doing this same peculiar behavior um, about uh, diving underwater and b- being able to recirculate an air bubble
2: incredible footage when when we went yeah. to see the documentary yeah. that was incredible footage I, I was very very surprised with that when when I yeah, when, so this, this is on page
3: 275 275 of the newsletter <laughs> and,
4: and it, just a I bit br- of a scroll
3: <laughs> I brought this up last time but I, I want to say it
1: when I looked at it it looks a lot like the diving spider the diving yeah. bell spider, how it gets yeah. that film around it of, you know, it's yeah. something clinging to its skin. It's incredible.
2: Well the analysis yeah, so have all I, these velocities in the scale that might be helping that happen. Yeah. Exactly, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So what you can so actually see you can see on the footage the air bubble which is which is over the nostril, and you can see the lungs of the body, the like kind of the, the body itself laterally compress and the air bubble going up yeah. and down as the uh, as as the lizard seems to recirculate in this air. It's just mind-boggling spectacular and I think it's really really cool yeah it's just a fantastic bit of old-school natural history yeah yeah
0: Yeah. and it immediately prompted so when this was going around circulating on on twitter it became i mean it got really a lot of attention Mm -hmm. and um (laughs) immediately people were like okay so what's the physical like limitation how much oxygen It, it can this be a system for maintaining a longer period underwater and how how efficient could it be and how big is how big is the bubble actually because is the bubble now expanding over all of those scales like it could actually be ex- extending over the entire body or it could just be the bubble that's on top of the head i would rather the, think the former yeah
1: there's and, there's there's got to be some kind of physics at you know some kind of physical limit to yeah. the size you can be for that to work
0: exactly so the the nice thing is that um, oxygen pressure into these bubbles causes oxygen to diffuse into the bubble and out of the water so you actually do have exactly the right sort of sort of thing that's what that's what the spiders rely upon and so theoretically this is this is actually functional and then um i had found and i don't know where this is anymore but there is um there is a formula for how big a bubble would have to be for a human being to be able to survive underwater just in a in a giant bubble, because it, it's theoretically possible with our tidal volume, at a certain size of bubble, which becomes just ridiculously huge, um, for the, the, the diffusion gradient to actually maintain the level of oxygen that we would need. Um, so, you know, the physical limitation is certainly limited by your by your metabolism and your body size. Um, and in the case of these lizards, what I found remarkable is that. As far as I can tell, it's not like I don't know what a normal lizard can can stand underwater, but you know most lizards can hold their breath for a very long time, like half an hour forty five minutes without suffering the sort of brain damage that humans get um and this the uh, this report is just fifteen minutes of underwater um life cycle or, or or underwater presence that it that it enables so i guess what we need to need to see is sort of a test of what the ability is and how long how long is it prolonging it is it a functional thing at all or are they just happening to have these bubble heads this um, is the part where yeah. you're
1: advocating holding anoles underwater for- i'm not advocating <laughs>
0: holding anoles underwater <laughs> Nothing, nothing unethical, please. But what I find
2: interesting <laughs> about this is that we have to look at this type of thing occurring in more semi-aquatic lizards. We don't know if this occur. I, I To my mind, and I said this last time when we talked about it in the, in the last episode. Um, well,
0: I've been trying to avoid mentioning the last episode because it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah,
2: right. yeah, yeah, the tropidorid tropid- lizard uranoscodon which is semi-aquatic. Has yep. very yeah. interesting head morphology. It would be great to see if something like this occurred. Which which the, which, which, which genus was that? Uranoscodon.
3: Uranoscodon, okay. Uranoscodon,
2: Uranoscodon tropid- superciliosus. Right, right. the Tropodophorus tropidifor-
3: mo- tropidifor- yeah. are a weird little group of skinks as well, which are similarly aquatic, and we don't really know yeah. anything about their ecology and natural yeah. history. I found yeah. them once in yeah. Siloasi, just yeah,
0: and loads of skinks have become aquatic as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in Madagascar, at at least, um, there is one radiation of skinks that are actually skinks in Southeast Asia skinks,
3: sk- skinks get a bad rep uh, in in the world of lizard biologists, um, but skinks are fascinating. They're a fascinating clade of of, of lizards. Really, really yeah. uh, ecologically diverse. Uh, I guess, kind of. Although they do seem rubbish at radiating. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Which, exactly. Exactly. They don't they haven't yeah, they haven't reached the heights of yeah. some some more, well, more they, diverse they, groups.
2: They 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 are incredibly conservative in the new world. So it's yeah. very yeah. difficult to tell species apart. But um but yeah, there are a ton of semi aquatic lizards and it would be great to see if something like this has been overlooked and it, it is a lot yeah. more common than we yeah. think.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, because one one yeah. of the things that, that why it's hard, or maybe this behavior hasn't been identified, is you guys know from tropical fieldwork or just any fieldwork. As soon as something jumps in a river, it's like, uh, uh, I'll catch it. I'll, yeah, exactly. Nobody's really one. thought yeah, to no go and look for it. Yeah, no yeah. one's thinking. Oh hang on. I'm just going to grab my snorkel and um, and see what's going on. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> you're just thinking, oh, it's gone away, it's gone down river, and I'll I'll catch the next I one. Just, so, uh, I just I yeah. just
2: saw something the other day,
1: and I think you guys saw it too. the The monitor lizard that was out. Oh yeah. They filmed it in the ocean?
2: Yes. Like under uh, like Oh I didn't see that. Oh yeah, there was a, a oh, water yeah, was monitor. Deep as well, right? Yeah, a water monitor, yeah. like I think it was like twelve meters under uh, like in a cor- mm-hmm. like uh, hanging out on a coral uh on reef a, or something. Was, yeah, on a, yeah on a on a ship on a wreck, on a shipwreck, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. like twelve yeah, meter underwater. Yeah, yeah, that's massive. And everybody was like, Tra- Oh, they're bringing
2: to... bringing mosasaurs back. I was
1: gonna say trying to bring a mosasaur back. <laughs>
2: The right group.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I would think I, just, <laughs> keep, I just keep throwing monitor lizards in the ocean hoping for the best.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but you know, but it's That's not the uncommon way to do it. it's not, <laughs> lizards going into the into salt water is not that uncommon. Uh James knows that iguanas do this do this here in Miami all the time. I, 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 yes. Right in here in my front of my bay on the bay mm-hmm. of my house, you know, we have iguanas going into the bay like oh. all the time. They do that often. Mm-hmm. So. now yeah, sure, that's no. scary, of the anyone that's traveled to
3: Southeast Asia knows that you can see a whole yeah. suite of Varanids, but mainly the water monitors, Salvatore, um, that yeah. whole complex. They just swim everywhere. And I mean, Indonesia yeah. is the world's biggest archipelago and they've perfectly adapted to moving between islands. You find water monitors on even the most remote. Uh, they're incredible.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, um, this, this whole... I mean, I guess that 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 makes this observation even more special, right? We know so many different animals that are, so many different reptiles that are actually going into the water. And this is the very first time that anything like this has ever been seen. That, I mean, when the footage came out, I really, um, it blew my mind completely. Yeah.
3: Good. Well, but. good. Great. Anyone interested in it should come and cut, Come and study, study your nose.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that's the takeaway message here. If you if you want to do the hot stuff in the um, in herpetology, there's a reason that we keep talking about anoles in almost every episode. It's just there's so much going on and there's so much cool stuff. So
3: yeah, a, f- a fascinating group of lizards. I understand why why uh, some people uh, I don't know, aren't the biggest fans of them because it is a a very kind of well-studied model system and there's a lot of cool lizards spread throughout the the world, right? Lots of very cool groups of lizards, but I know was a, they are spectacular, so I encourage everyone to come and uh, have a little try with them, at least once. First first herp I ever kept was a green and all.
1: Solid, solid. When I was seven years old. And nice. in the Neotropics,
2: hmm. uh, in the mainland particularly, there's still a lot, a lot of undescribed species. I uh, can't well, tell yeah, you how many it. species I know that are still and are still yeah. waiting for yeah so, uh,
3: so. It's, it's such a fantastic model system but what we know about what well, the species which we know a lot about which we feel really comfortable understanding kind of their ecology and their natural history is I'd say 2% of the of all species of an owl or something They're just we don't know it's a huge a radiation. we we don't yeah. know a lot about a lot of the species and there's lots and lots of very good science that still needs to be done
2: and Anolis carolinensis was the first uh, genome of uh, any lizard that was sequenced, right?
3: Uh, Anolis Absolutely. carolinensis, yeah, it was the, the first genome, and it's led to, to people using uh, Anolis as a model system that would never have used it, They're not working with it. lizard ecology or evolution specifically, just using that genome. And now there's going to be a few more sequenced and, and become publicly available in the next couple of years. And so that just only kind of increases the validity of, of using this group for all sorts of weird science.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. And now, I mean, if they're, if they're already developing the, the tools for genomic manipulation of them, you're going to have, I mean, the, the system now is
2: Mutant is and better old. than ever. <laughs> I
0: mean, that's crazy. That's really, really cool. Okay. And I think that wraps it up for episode eight of the Squamates podcast. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>
3: Uh, yeah, eight oh, <laughs> <laughs> B. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry again, guys. Uh, uh, oh no! I know oh, This this was great. This one was good. This great. one was good. This
0: this was, this re- was really good. If, if, really if, really if good. anyone, uh, thank anyone you so is, much for you know, joining us. If James.
3: anyone is actually listening, you can. You can be pleased to hear, <laughs> pleased to hear that um, we've shaved at least an hour off it. So, you yeah, it yeah. yeah, was, was a lot That's less true. random.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It, it felt good. Um, yeah, so thanks a lot. You can find us on the internet if you want to. Uh, Ethan, where can one find you? I'm uh, at Black Mud Puppy
1: virtually everywhere. I have the nudist.com website.
0: That's and, N-E-W-T, uh, for those who are yes. wondering. Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. And, uh, Very good. Yeah. Okay, Gabriel? Uh, and I'm at, I'm at Serpent Illust in um, Twitter and Instagram. I have a Facebook page, but I don't really use it. And my website, <laughs> com.
0: Right. You can find me at Mark Shirts on uh, Twitter and on Instagram now. I got rid of the underscore in my name because I have no idea why it was there. So I'm now at Mark Shirts on all the things except for my Facebook page, which is at MD Shirts because I'm stupid. And... Um, Mostly I've been posting, well, I just started posting a lot more because I now have the ability to post to Instagram from my computer. So now you get actual really high quality pictures instead of my usual, like, here's a selfie, here's an orchid sort of deal. Um, Yeah, and uh, markshirts.com, where you can find out that I am already... past the submission date for my thesis, which I hopefully will have already submitted by the time that this episode airs, but probably not. We'll see. All right. <laughs> and James, where can one find you?
3: Uh, you can find me on Twitter as well, at James T. Stroud, S-T-R-O-U-D. Um, and then the same same for my website, www.jameststroud.com. And, and also please do follow at um, Anole It's a It's a lovely little uh, account just for all things Anole Biology.
1: I did it yeah. while we were talking. And the oh, blog man. is brilliant.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and
3: the, yeah. The blog the blog is fantastic. And it's got really, yeah. really good, good suite of contributors.
0: Yeah. It's great that so many different people are, are really, you know, um, you know, they, they observe something that you can picture, they upload it to, to the blog. It's really, really cool. Yeah.
3: All right. Jonathan, my boss, Jonathan Losos takes a lot, should take all the credit for that. He works tirelessly to make sure that blog's kind of really productive and really successful. So it's, yeah, it's a great, great yeah. resource.
0: And very probably, we will be posting a link to this episode on the blog. So uh, go and uh, um, uh, hello and welcome if you're coming from there. Thanks for being here. And uh, please subscribe. And to subscribe, you can go to uh, squamatespod.com. And there you can find all of the episodes. You can find our extensive show notes uh, on every episode, which contain links to... All of the papers we discuss in this episode that's gonna be a really nice and short uh list because it's only the one thing which is great um and there you can also find links to subscribe to us on google podcasts on everything except for spotify essentially because spotify wants us to have shortest shorter episodes that are of lower quality and i refuse so um, especially you, Apple podcast. If you like the show, please go and well, first of all, hit subscribe. Uh, give us a rating and if you have the time it would be great if you would leave us a review because it helps us to get seen by other people and we like to be seen by other people even though we are herpetologists you can follow us on twitter at squamates pod on facebook squamates pod on instagram we're squamates pod you can send us an email at squamatespod@gmail.com at gmail.com and finally as we say on the show I